0: Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, writer and photographer Roger Vlitos will discuss how Stonehenge has been seen in every age, from its first appearance in medieval manuscripts to present day. Thank you. They told me I was going to get Bath's best and brightest. They didn't tell me I was going to get the best looking people. But thank you so much for coming. You've made an old man happy. Um, our Let's just, we're going to have a very discursive view of images of Stonehenge, but also discussing um, the beliefs that have been attached to it. So we've no, I mean, it's just going to start. And if I'm going too fast, would would you shout, break, or something like that? Um, you can be as rude as you like. Um, we know that it's between 3,000, it was built between 3,100 and 1800 BC we know that it has rather like the indian american indians say more legend and sky than as many as 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 um, any theories as there are stars this is the first image of stonehenge in spite of the entire classical period 600 years in which we had Greeks visiting, and and certainly Romans in occupation, we have absolutely no mention of Stonehenge in any of the classical period. And what we have, you'll be delighted to know, is a picture um, done by an Anglo-Norman for the brute of the magician Merlin erecting it with the aid of giants. Now, many of you think you're British and um, certainly Um, Wace, who wrote this book, was very keen on the British. That's why it's called The Brute. And he was... You'll be delighted to know that you all descend from the Trojans, the Trojan ruler, according to um, Geoffrey of Monmouth, and that um, the Trojans fled from uh, Hisilik, northern Turkey, and they arrived in um, Britain, and so you're all kind of Turkish, really. Um, Geoffrey who has a vivid imagination. Um, Also, I mean, he may be right, actually, because I've met people who believe this, uh, that he magically transported some of the stones from Ireland. He also brought some... There is always a, a grain of salt in these legends. He brought some, according to Geoffrey Monmouth, from north of Avebury, existing stone circles. We do know that the Sarsen stones came from Wiltshire, North Wiltshire, 25 miles as the crow flies. And we also know that whilst they didn't come, the bluestones in the centre came from Wales, the Purcelli Mountains. Our next image is 14th century, and it's in the Corpus Christi College Library, and it's a rectangle. Clearly, neither Geoffrey of Monmouth nor the artist here had ever seen Stonehenge. We then have the very eminent Sir Stephen Gardner, Bishop of Bury St. Edmunds, who visited it and, and is keen to tell us that it's built by the Minoans. Again, nobody can quite believe that it's British. This is a, an underconfidence which I think we, we get rid of eventually, so don't worry. The first drawing that we have of it, 1570 by a Flemish artist called Lucas de Tahir, And you'll notice that... How many people here have been to Stonehenge? Good. Well, I didn't see one odd hand go up, but never mind. I I just want to reassure that person that Stonehenge is in Salisbury Plain. So this elevation is either a result of this man getting his bottom much higher than most of us can to do the drawing, or it's it's a projection. And you'll notice that It's got a couple of the blue stones in the center, and we have a rather dapper fellow to give it scale. The next illustration we have is from an unknown artist called RF. At the birth of the printing process, and this is widely circulated, and you'll, you'll notice that we have a couple things here, like various features. For instance... When you went to Stonehenge, did you see a castle on the horizon? Well, there isn't one, but there is is an old Iron Age camp or castle, and he doesn't have it here, but we see it first emerging there. And we see a couple of people digging for bones. So RF is showing us that people are already excavating. People are curious. Then in 1574, Lucas de paints it. And you may notice that he has reversed it to paint it. Um, in other words, he wasn't there. And he has also made our castle, the Iron Age hillfort, appear really rather grand. You know We, we expect Rapunzel there. And we've got three diggers. So a bit of myth is being You will also notice that instead of a henge, poor old Lucas didn't know what, what a henge was, which is a rampart, he gives us a wall. William Smith, thank God he's British, was Rouge Dragon of the College of Arms, draws it again. And the, But what he gives us this time is some barrows. Those are the pancakes, by the way. Barrows, he gives us a ruined castle, and it's quite clear that he has borrowed his image from other images he's seen, just as the other three have. So there may have been a drawing or print circulating that people were building their perceptions on. Finally, in Camden's Britannia in 1600, we have the widest circulation print of up to date, and we have this conglomeration of all the other ones we've seen put together. We have the castle. We have an extraordinary um, image of Salisbury Plain that looks much more like the Peak District. <laughs> we've got the diggers. The diggers are out. Inigo Jones and the Temple of Colsus. Inigo Jones, as you may know, was a classically trained, in Italy, architect um, who did did Covent Garden and the, the King's Banqueting House, and while staying with his patron at Wilton nearby, he goes and surveys it. Now, what he decides is that it's a Roman temple dedicated to the sky gods, and this is his projection of it. What he's been reading is a very little-known classical text by Diodorus Sicilus, a Sicilian based in Marseille, a a Greek traveler, who recounted other Greek travelers' tales about a temple, a roofless temple in the British Isles. And there were, oh, there were a number of these chaps um, who, there was uh, Pythias and others um, who, who wrote about temples. And you see Jones has made it very formal, and very classicist, and architectonic. He's also makes you wonder if, how much surveying he did. He gave us a completely symmetrical view of its layout, which is actually wrong. However, in the book that he published, we do get some fabulous elevations, like this one. Well, it comes out, and it's very popular, and the, the king's physician, Charles II's physician, is Dr. Walter Carlton of Bath, decides that, it's, that he's wrong, and, it's, in fact, he claims it's a pavilion for Danish kings. And this, gets, this theory gets a bit of currency, until somebody writes a little pamphlet called A Fool's Bolt is Soon Shot at Stonehenge. John Aubrey. John Aubrey, as you may know, was a sort of wonderful magpie um, intellectual, and having discovered, an in inverted commas, Avebury, he is commanded by the king to survey Avebury, but also Stonehenge. <coughs> He, he comes, he's got a very dim view, a very sh- murky view of prehistory, in spite of his classical education, and, and he claims that it's a juridical temple, um, but he modestly claims to have only brought our understanding from darkness to a thin mist. Within his book, the Monumental Britannica, we find odd things like he plagiarizes um, Inigo Jones's painting. He adds some wonderful shade and to it, but he plagiarizes it. He, too, is borrowing on other people's perceptions of it. Albury's friend, um, the mathematician, architect, and in the early part of his life, astronomer, very brilliant, Wiltshireman as well as Albury, um, Christopher Wren writes, he, he writes, for the stones do pitch all one way, like arrow shot. Let us look and see what part of the heavens to which they point. Now, if we go back and we look at the RF print and Camden's Britannica, that's what you might perceive. Um, so we, we don't know that he's been there himself, but he certainly writes this to Aubrey. Aubrey discovers in his survey 56 holes, which he and, following this planetary association, he and Wren decide are compute that can be used to predict um, eclipses of the moon. So we see it becoming something like, we now have an interpretation of it being an astronomical computer of some sort. Very much, Aubrey is very interested in all sorts of weird and wonderful prehistorical ideas. He spends a lot of time searching for the Rosicrucians, who he believes have the key to lost knowledge. Um, and this idea of lost knowledge is very much in the air in the 18th century. And even though it's the age of great advances in science and mathematics, nobody can quite get, get rid of it. And Aubrey is keen. To, to look at the accounts in classical uh, sources of Druids in white robes and their lost win- wisdom, etc. And However, Tacitus tells us that books were unknown to them. And in fact, there are only something like 2,000 lines in the classical sources relating to Druids, and they're very often not relating to British Druids. So there's an awful lot of speculation going on here. I'm not, I hope I don't, you don't feel I'm leading you too much. I'm trying to get her. We do have British ideas, uh, pictorialism coming in here. We see that in spite of the fact that Caesar and Tacitus tells us the Druids are people of the groves, um, we have illustrations where we're showing them with with Stonehenge as though Stonehenge was completely covered in trees. Um, Modern archaeologists will point out that a lot of the landscape was cleared John Evelyn is, is fascinated, fascinated by all of this, but he comes out and says that it rudely represents a cloister, a heathen, or more natural temple. He's not buying into the Druidical theory. Now, so far, we have seen some pretty wayward images of Stonehenge. I'd like to point out that this is by another Dutchman, Van der Laar. Van der Laar. And what he has is a camera lucida. Has anybody, does anybody know what this is? Basically, what he has is a camera obscura. It's like a, it's in fact like a, it's a van with a tiny hole in it, and he blacks it out and he puts a lens in there, and then he can park it in the landscape and project on a bright day a scene on the back end of his. his his van, and then trace it, and he publishes these. So what we have here is the first lens view of Stonehenge. Now, our date here is 1688, and I want to contrast this with a photograph taken in 1877. Quite interesting, isn't it? So we have a view by Van der A, which is more or less at eye level. In the meantime, uh, the, uh, Ms. Uh, Logan, David Logan, who is the printmaker for Oxford University, produces this sublime set of prints. They're often seen as the high point of eight, uh, 17th century printmaking. And again, we're still getting quite a lot of interpretation we're certainly getting something creeping in on the druidical side. Um, this famous depiction of a druid as a lonely outcast on a shore um, by um, Haram. Joyce, by the way, in, in the 20s said that a, a modern man has to leap over land inundated with Harem's ancestors to live in the present. Joyce, very much the modernist. And then Again, chronologically, we get more depictions of Druids, and each time, they're wearing the latest archaeological finds. Our interpretation of them is still mixed with classical sources. For instance, what we have here is an oracular snake, such as you might find in, Mino- in Minoan culture. And, but he does have a torque and various things that were recently found... well in seventeen twenty four the doctor and Rev. William Stukeley expounds expound his belief about Stonehenge. Now, Stukeley was an amazingly energetic character when he encounters Stonehenge, according to his diaries he 's suffering from gout, and Dr. Stukeley, whose brother is an apothecary, finds that his gout is worse, particularly after drinking sessions with the Bishop of Rochester, drinking far too much rich Madeira wine. And so he starts taking opiate drafts. Now, looking around the audience here, I can see quite a few of you who have experimented with mind-enhancing drugs. And I know the signs. I know you come from good families, but you've gone wrong over the years. Nothing wrong, you know. So... We we have a kind of expansive view in Stukely, which is nevertheless wonderful and memorable. In fact, after his death, the Society of Antiquaries strike this medal for him. Um, he does style himself the Arch Druid. He does build himself in the in the back of his gar. And in fact, his parishioners call him this because he gets them. Good. Um, he gets these Church of England people to practice these, this ancient, uh, these ancient rites. And um, he builds himself a little hermitage, a druid's hermitage in his garden. I, his book, which is actually a high point in British publishing, it has fold-outs, wonderfully illustrated. It's completely beguiling when you look at it. It's just inundated with druids, and they're all doing this two days in Samaritz and already I've lost my skis or something like that. And it's really rather wonderful. He does, um, archaeologists will point out to you that he does exaggerate and he's he's giving us the connotations of, of Stonehenge, the feel of it. Now, Sad to say, he thinks it was built by the Phoenicians, Phoenician colonists, and he really should have worked for the... If he was alive today, he'd be writing for the Daily Mail because what he says is the original... Druidism is the original patriarchal religion of the British Isles which degenerated into pagan idolatry as a result of later emigrants to these shores. Now, he may be right... He's the first to give us the prospect of Stonehenge, the really wonderful prospect with barrows, most of which come along with an ancient culture afterwards. It becomes very much a, a necropolis. People would Some of these barrows, they've been excavated. There aren't even bones in them. They've just brought earth or ash from somewhere else. And quite a lot of them are in Rhineland style or... There's certainly British people being buried there, but people are coming from all over Europe to be buried here. It's a significant international monument. Stukeley publishes this oval picture, and he's right, it's an exaggerated oval. Stonehenge is not a pure circle. And he is determined to get an altar into it. Um, Both Aubrey and... Inigo Jones remarked that there was no altar that they could see, but Stukely insists that it's been taken away and is still being used. He may be right. Um, One of Stukely's followers, Dr. Smith, expands a bit further. He says it's a grand orrery, a mathematical computer, one of these delightful things. That's an orrery. Um, Showing the solar year, the lunar month, the 12 signs of the zodiac, it's a temple of the Buddha, according to Dr. Smith, the Druids being held to be a race of emigrated Indian philosophers. As you probably know, John Wood declared, it's a kind of cross between Hebrew and Welsh, um, the circus to be the choir guar, and he went on to design it with various Druidical Themes attached, particularly the finials, which are in the shape of acorns, and it's apparently too based on the diameter of Stonehenge. By 1774, Stonehenge is actually a landmark appearing on maps, and you'll be delighted to know that the Ancient Order of Druid is founded by a London green grocer, Henry Hurl, in 1781. And some of my countrymen immediately join the clubs. And this is Henry Hurl's statue in Chicago. Now, why can't you have one for him? <laughs> lots and lots of people get involved in printmaking. Two Scotsmen, uh, Byrne and Medlin, they come a number of times. Um, the, the Devizes Museum has a number of very interesting antiquarian drawings. John Ibbotson. And then in 1792, we have this remarkable man, Yolo I- morganoc His real name, his given name was John Edwards, who um, during a period spent at Her Majesty's Pleasure for the crime of forgery, um, hatches a number of new manuscripts, which are sent far and wide, and um, influence a lot of people because they're considered to be genuine. However, under the influence of laudanum, which um, it's a mixture of, of um, opium and alcohol, and Celtic inspiration, never underestimate it, he writes the Bardia, And um, he creates the Welsh Order of Bards, of which uh, we have the Queen, our own dear Queen, and Prince Charles are now honorary members. So no mockery. Actually, the Welsh Bards and the Welsh Druids are very much a picture of the Welsh establishment. It's a very serious business, and they... Um, It really is the cream of of their society. I I don't want you to think I'm marking him, but I do have a certain amount of doubts about Yolo Morganog, especially when he set up his circle of white pebbles called a gorseth. And as you probably know, every year at the Eisteddfod, they create a new gorseth. It moves around. We have our first guidebook in 1793... And you'll notice that it makes mention of Inigo Jones and Dr. Stookley. Dr. Stookley is by now the Reverend Stookley. We have the extraordinary mania for collecting. Um, This is John Britton's cabinet of curiosities with inlaid marquetry of Stonehenge, a plaster cast model in the the top. This is in the Devices Museum. And he also commissioned wonderful artists like John Sell Cotman to do these insets, some of which have faded. Um, Cotsman, Cotman, Cotman's watercolors did fade. We, these so it, I know that many of you know about the history of, of printmaking and art. These are all eminent printmakers. Who you have to visit Stonehenge, it has to be visited. Um, We have people taking away and digging still. This really rather wonderful urn is um, found by William Cunnington, whose daughter becomes an archaeologist and helps uncover the sanctuary at Avebury. And the Cunningtons do wonderful field work. They lose a lot of it, as many antiquarians did. And we have mad King George wanting his own print, and commanding his artist that it have some sheep in it. Turner comes in 1810. Tastes are changing rapidly. Turner does this fleeting sketch, very romantic, very sublime. He's rather scared by it, and he comes back to paint it with an incredibly dramatic scene where the elements have come down and lightning has struck, kill some sheep, kill the poor old shepherd. And the dog, as you'd expect, is mourning his... I can't go on. It's too emotional. <laughs> a follower, Robert Havel, is working on a book of ancient costume. He's a rather gifted draftsman, but he's, he's also a follower of Stukely. And so what he does is he imagines all these wonderful rites and puts them in there. And as you can see, he's got his snake, which is borrowed from the Minoans. And we've got a bull, a white bull. You can't really see clearly. And then there's Stukeley's. wool. Very exciting stuff. William Blake gets interested, writes a, his Jerusalem, which is peppered with trilithons the, throughout. Blake, Rather like Blake made up anatomy as he went along. give a wonderful poet and artist. Um, he certainly invented archaeology as he went along. And in the same year, Lord Byron visits and says, writes, the Druid's groves are all gone, so much the better. Stonehenge is not Druidical, but what the devil is it? Constable paints this, but he doesn't exhibit it for 15 years. He doesn't think the public taste is up to it. It's too wild and scary a subject. He does an aquatint and sticks in a nice, comforting little hayway. Rowlandson comes along. You notice they're still digging. no stopping them. And then we have my hero. Um, this is Henry Brown who sets up a little hut in Stonehenge, and is this itself port- appointed keeper to stop the diggers. And to finance himself, he does rather good little watercolors to sell to tourists. Now, his own, um, and then the, the owner, Sir Edward Antrobus, allows him to stay there. And uh, Brown has his own ideas about Stonehenge. He thinks it was a temple, but it's the remains of a temple that was washed away by the great flood the biblical flood—pretty good illustrations, aren't they? When commissioned by Dr. Eliash Ashmole to do a a, a plaster cast, he builds it, he puts it in a wheelbarrow, and wheels it all the way up to the British Museum. He doesn't trust the postal service. And then Ashmole. Commissions him again to make one in in Cork, which is now in the Ashmolean Museum. This man is heroic. Can we have a... (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Nothing like a good old English eccentric, now is there? Ooh. Don't be afraid. Um, William Overton Geller, R.A. The Druid Sacrifice on the Non-Existent, or We Can't Find the altar stone. We have Charles Knight R.A. By now, you have to draw it. And then we have an anonymous print called the Giant Staircase. So we've gone back to the earliest legend. The first photographs, Sir Colonel Sir Henry James, giving us the scale in a rather fetching top hat, I think. Um, And this is the first ordnance survey. He's the creator of the ordnance survey, and these are the first official photographs of it. Another anonymous book engraving. And it would appear that the same one has been plagiarized because this comes out in the same year, and it's called The Wheel of Time or The Perpetual Calendar of the Druids. Thomas Hardy, by 1892, sets a wonderful scene among the time touchstones stones at Stonehenge. And another grocer. Grocers feature large in the cultural appreciation of Stonehenge. This, this wonderful man created um, Henry Underhill in 1895, traveled with his Magic Lantern show, and here we are, just a bit of it. These are painted photographs, painted on glass. Thank God for grocers, I say. Now, going back to that, 1895, 1901, all visitors excluded for the first time, while a leaning upright is repositioned. This is one of the uprights that um, Christopher Wren thought was pointing at the heavens. And we have the ancient order of Druids invited for the summer solstice and picnic at, breakfast picnic afterwards by Sir William Antrobus, the owner of at the time. Now, these Masonic symbols, etc., they have, and the false beards. And you'll notice they are carrying what look like crooks. These are sickles for cutting mistletoe. Um, All of these are available from an ecclesiastical costumier behind Westminster Abbey. And only the creme de la creme can afford them or go there. Some Druids, however, believe that it's built by Brahmins, and so they dress accordingly. Sir Norman Lockyer comes, the astroarchaeologist, editor of the New Scientist. He is attempting to prove its astronomical alignments, and he creates a bit of a stir, and he has to have police protection. Prince Leopold, Queen Victoria's son, seen standing here against the stone, joins the AOD, the Ancient Order of Druids, in 1907, and so does Sir Winston Churchill... Fashions change. By 1913, they're not wearing false beards, and they have even prettier frocks. 1915, the Royal Royal Flying Corps wants it demolished as a hazard to low-flying aircraft. Nothing changes. (laughs) He could have floated around it. (laughs) And but after the war, an American Quaker entrepreneur builds this out of concrete uh, as a memorial to the dead of both world wars. Sorry, both sides during World War I. So we have the first replica. 21, 1921, we have a number of stones being changed under the direction, and, and we have them re-erected. A lot of work going on. Then we have the first of the Japanese tourists. Rather nice woodblock print, 1922, very traditional. Better than taking those cameras along, I think. Lovely thing. And the AOD continue to gather, and they're very active. Alfred Watkins comes, Uh, he's the inventor of the ley line theory. He thinks that... um, It's a theory. He thinks that many of of Tracks culminated at Stonehenge, and um, he had many followers right up until recently. They now believe in energy lines more than ley lines. Anyhow, in 1927, there are so many sightseers that Sir William Antropos decides he's going to shut it. He's not going to allow anybody in, other than his Druidical brethren for the solstice, and the Old Straight cra- Track Club. 1940, we get Alan Sorrell's really rather wonderful, romantic de- depiction of it. John Piper was based at Lark Hill Barracks, and there's a series of paintings. Piper felt um, that it, it, it was a symbol of endurance during the war, um, And this curious man, uh, well, great landscape photographer, Willy Brandt, not the politician. Um, Brandt um, was a... His mother was, was English. His father was German. He spoke with a heavy German accent. And it's quite a surprise to people to find out that he got one of the first landscape covers on Picture Post, the largest circulation magazine. But it's not when you think that Sir Edward Halton the owner of Picture Post, was a member of the Ancient Order of Druids. When the Department of Ancient Monuments did a survey, you can see how, in 1952, you can see how confusing it is. And so a number of, of decisions were made about what to raise and what not to raise. And we've now got most of our received wisdom has come from the result of these twentieth century excavations. And, much to the chagrin of a great a, a number of a, a faction of people, stones were repositioned, <coughs> thereby affecting their energy fields, according to modern theorists. During that that period um, this cartoon Uh, appears, and as you can see, giants are again building Stonehenge. We've gone back to the original. Um, In 1968, a Tibetan trumpet is used to welcome the dawn by the AOD. Professor Tom comes along. Tom has surveyed 360 ancient... um, Stone Circles and spends an awful lot of time on Stonehenge and at Karnak and had a great following, still does to a certain degree. Unfortunately, most of his calculations have been challenged. um, And rather like Stephen Hawking's book, um, Brief History of Time, very few people have finished his books. John Capanino Negro was a completely dedicated to photographing um, these monuments and did in Ireland, France, um, Scandinavia, and and particularly in Britain. And these are a series of photographs that he took before he fell off a stone and and became paralyzed and a paraplegic. And I think he really does capture the spirit of place. These are the blue stones in the foreground, as you can see. Now, some of you were here, I know, but you've forgotten that you were here. This is the the free festivals of the 60s. 1975, it overflows the the newly constructed car park, erected by the aptly named Baroness Burke. Um, And what we have is a new set of people who are appreciating Stonehenge as a venue for... The free festivals, and sometimes they stay throughout the summer months. They certainly interfere, as far as the AOD, uh, with the religious ceremonies. Police are called to control the anarchic elements. Rather inevitably, what we—it is associated with a fight for counterculture, fight for freedom—and the whole place is surrounded in razor wire and shut after the Battle of the Beanfield for 17 years. This ex-squaddy, whose real name is Reg, who calls himself um, Arthur of the Britons, he's changed his name by a deed poll. Arthur Pentragon, starts a vigil. And he recruits a number of other um, p- druids, an interesting party, He is made an honorary member of the AOD, the the Ancient Order of Druids, and then he starts creating new bands of druids. These are just some. Law, the Loyal Arthurian War Band, God, Glastonbury Order of Druids, Pod, Portsmouth Order of Druids, Sod, (laughs) Secular Order of Druids, IOD, Insular Order of Druids. They don't have anything to do with the rest of them. Hod, Hampshire Order of Druids. Cobdo, etc., etc. I might, or oh, I'm very fond of Sword, the sacred warriors of ravens and druids who have the most beautiful frocks made out of chicken feathers dyed black. Um, as I say, these are just a few of them. The police invent their own order of druids, Plod. <laughs> Fay Godwin. Chairman of the Ramblers, fantastic photographer, wonderful British photographer, um, campaigns in her way. John Piper does, writing to the Times, saying that it's been caged and wrecked. And his grandson, Luke, who comes from Froome, did this rather wonderful painting. Arthur takes his campaign to the European Court of Human Rights and wins. Um, During this period, while it's all shut. We have a number of parodies about... This is something called um, Spinal Tap, where we have um, the children of Albion want to dance around Stonehenge, and so they build a replica. But unfortunately, they make the replica two feet high. Um, It's a comical scene. And then, thank God for the Americans, (laughs) on a dump in Alliance, Nebraska which is not even a one horse town, it's a two-fly town. What we have is Carhenge. This becomes a spectacular tourist site. Puts Alliance Nebraska on the mark, on the map. English Heritage are now allow a photographer in to photograph the hale Bob Comet, where other astronomers are allowed in, druids are still excluded. And they're protesting outside. Arthur is always there protesting. Charlie Waite, great, great British photographer, is allowed to photograph it for stamps. And then we have Fridgehenge. <laughs> he got an Arts Council grant for this. <laughs> 2000, Arthur is allowed open, managed open access. And we have uh, English Heritage replaced the Department of Ancient Monuments. National Trust, UNESCO are now managing it all together with trying to manage it with disparate groups of Druids and Pagans. Um, Inclusiveness means that Pagan and Wicca priestesses now have time for ceremonies as well. And other campaigners, such as Merlin, He's, he was part of God, um, Glastonbury Order of Druids. I don't know what he is now, but have. And so now we have a return to festivals and a, a campaign for quarter days. Uh, up to eight festivals a year is what um, they're campaigning for. 28,000 attended last summer. So let's look at some of the ideas. We have about five minutes more to go before they try to drag me off and stop me talking. I'm going to get through this because I know you want to know. Dowsers believe in it. They feel the energy lines. They believe it was created specifically because of various blind springs. Pythagoreans. Now, some of you may know Pythagoras from school. Um, they are reincarnated, they are still with us, these bubble and squeaks, these Greeks, and affecting Stonehenge today. Not me, by the way, but um. uh, a numerologist sees the ideal male and female proportions in the trilithon. Druidical ritual, the trilithon initiation. More the ley line theory has become expanded into energy fields ringing the globe. We have shamans who believe it's a stargate. UFOs. Crop circles, of course. An architect. He thinks it was, it looked like this, a sort of Club Med. <laughs> and the University of Texas of the Permian ba- Basin has built another facsimile. Unfortunately, I don't think that they understood prehistory because they built it right next to the car park and the road. Perhaps that clued them. Foam henge. Made completely of styrofoam. You can buy your own kit. Um, And you can also get a globe, a snow globe. You can get a T-shirt that says Stonehenge rocks. They may even have Stonehenge perfume. Now, if you become a British citizen, you will be given a citizenship pack. And this is it. And as you can see, we've revived the giant dance. <laughs> becoming a British citizen is the equivalent of becoming a giant amongst men and cultures. Uh, they wanted to build a fiberglass replica, as though we don't have enough replicas, and um, a, a tunnel, but all of that's decided it's, it's too expensive, and after 10 years of discussing it, We're back to the drawing board. In May 2008, Professor Michael Parker Pearson has said that, uh, announced that Stonehenge was a place of burial from its beginning to its zenith in the mid-third millennium BC. It was very much a domain of the dead. I think he's basing that on a lot of the, 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 the barrows as well as excavations they've done. So we've kind of gone back to The first idea that it was a burial, a monument for Arthur and his knights. We've gone more or less full circle. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much.